Now, Father, it is our delight to be together this morning, to be in one accord, and for me to be reunited with this body this morning. Oh, Father, we have come because of you, not because of us. We've come to have our hearts encouraged or corrected, and some perhaps born again. And we ask you, Father, to have your way with us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us such a spirit as to lay ourselves open to you this morning in such a way, with such transparency, that we would be willing to change in any and every area that you reveal needs to be changed. Lord, oh, if our, if our hope is in anything but Christ, if our trust is in money or relationships or in job or family or anything, any other good thing in this world or any sinful thing, oh, Father, wean us from it. Detach it from us. And give us the grace to overcome it by your grace and for your glory. And Lord, we would be more like Jesus because we know that's what you want. And that's where our joy can be found. And so we ask you, Father, be gracious to us, be patient with us, be firm with us where we, where we need a strong hand of correction. Do whatever needs to be done in our lives this morning to glorify your great name. And so we thank you for it. Holy Spirit, we pray you who are already here, come and move among us and teach us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're still kind of in this time where I'm kind of just bringing out some messages that I, I want to, the truths that I want us to be reminded of because I need to be reminded of these things from time to time. They're just so foundational. And then in a little while, we'll pick up with exposition as well. But for this morning, I really want to speak to you about hope. Hope. This is an important issue for us because we live in a world where so many people, even good Christian people, give kind of external evidence of happy, but deep down inside, they are hopeless. Even people in the church. Um, but certainly the outsiders. I just have returned from Southern California, right near Hollywood. And believe me, there are a lot of pretty, wealthy, and hopeless people. You tear back the facade of all of the, all of the trappings of movie making, which is just going on everywhere you go in L.A. There are people making movies. And, and then you read about their lives or you see things on the news about their lives and you think, it's just a facade. They're, they appear to be happy, but inside they're, they're lost and they're hopeless and sometimes we as believers can, can allow ourselves to get there as well. We lose our bearings. We lose the moorings that hold us in place and give us our security in Christ. And frankly, the reason people become hopeless is largely because they interpret the, their circumstances that they face. They look at them and, and, and interpret them in such a way that says life is out of control, life is random, and I feel trapped. Trapped. 
And though they enjoy many pleasures, perhaps, maybe they haven't discovered anything in this world that is strong enough to keep them secure against the difficulties and disappointments and tragedies and uncertainties of this life. And as a result, many people, many people just drift in a constant search of what they can't find. They're in a drift from philosophy to philosophy, worldview to worldview. Surely something has got to be out there. It's hedonism, or it's mysticism, or it's legalism, or it's asceticism, or it's materialism. And they bounce from philosophy to philosophy, and that takes them from experience to experience to experience. And just looking for meaning, looking for security in an experience. And from gimmick to gimmick. That's how a lot of people get rich. They come up with a new gimmick, a new twist, a new thing that promises security and promises help and promises high self-esteem or whatever it is. And yet people who drift from place to place like that, they never find an anchor for their soul. They never find it. And I think about um, the circumstances that produce this, and it doesn't matter who we're talking about because every person experiences circumstances that tempt us in a variety of ways, that if we give in to those temptations, if we allow our hope to drift to something other than to Christ, then we will find ourselves joyless and hopeless and sometimes even drifting into being reckless with the way that we live. I was just thinking about circumstances of people in our body who are facing difficulty and have or recently or in the past. A young woman like Elizabeth full of vigor and life, one day finds out she has cancer. How do you stay joyful in the midst of that? How do you maintain your hope in the midst of that? A family who's planned uh, and really look forward to, to taking one final vacation before they send their son off to school. The mom gets a tooth pulled and unexpectedly becomes deathly ill and finds herself in in ICU, and, you know, the vacation idea is gone. They're never going to do that now, at least not like they planned at the time they planned. And, you know, how do you, how do you respond to that? How do you interpret that? How do you keep joyful and hopeful? Or consider a man who loses his job and just can't seem to find another one. No matter how hard he tries, he wants to provide for his family, and, and, uh, and he's just struggling with, what does this mean? How do I interpret this? Or a, a young single person who feels lonely all the time and is kind of looking for clear direction about the future, but it just doesn't come. Or a man who's caught up in a sinful habit that he just can't seem to break. Where does he find hope? I don't want to stay like this. I don't want to be locked in this life-dominating sin anymore, but I can't find my way out. I don't know what to do, and so you go from therapy to therapy to 12-step group to other 12-step group to this gimmick and that gimmick and drugs and, and never finds an anchor for their soul. I think about parents who one night gladly sent their adult children out to watch a movie at a theater only to find out hours later that a gunman came in and took the lives of their children. How do you find hope in that? How do you keep your bearings? How do you, you know, where do you find a rock to put under your feet so that you just 
You just don't disintegrate under that. I paint these scenarios for you this morning because I know most of us have a hard time really relating to first century Christians in the context that they were in the book of Hebrews where they were being persecuted from every side. There was their fellow Jews who were, who were really after them because they had abandoned the faith as far as they were concerned. They were apostate because they had embraced Christ. And they had the Romans who were calling these same people, calling them atheists because they rejected the Roman gods. And, and then you had, uh, you had the, the, the uh, in, in Rome in particular, you had the Colosseum and the other stadiums where they would take the Christians and impale them and tar them and light them aflame or, or send them out to fight against wild beasts. Or, and the author of Hebrews even talks about Old Testament saints who were beaten and stuffed into hollow logs and sawed in two. And, I mean, can, can we relate to that? I can't relate to that. But these other scenarios, I know what that's like. And the question is, where do we find hope? If we're going to stand against these kinds of circumstances faithfully, we need hope. But where do we find that kind of rock-solid, bedrock kind of hope? Well, the answer to the question is, uh, is in a familiar place, I think. And this is just one place we could start. I just love Hebrews chapter 11, and I think this will help us this morning. But before we even dive into that, let's talk about hope for a minute. What is hope? Let's think about biblical definitions of hope. And we're not going to go too, too deep here. There's, there's a, a lot of Hebrew words that uh, neither I nor you can pronounce. There is, uh, in fact, there, there, are, there are such a number of them that most scholars say, you know, there is no one word that really encompasses the full scope of biblical hope in the Old Testament. But there are a couple of dominating terms in the Old Testament, and the one that, that, that kind of attracts me the most and, and really helps me understand what biblical hope is all about is a Hebrew word that means, are you ready for this? Here's a, here's a word picture for you. It means a rope a rope or something that you hang your most precious things from, or your life from. Now, you've heard me talk about the fact that my family, uh, we're, we're rock climbers, um, a bunch of goats maybe. We, uh, we just love to get out there on the cliffs and, and hook up a rope and climb. And, um, and you know what? If... Uh, we love to do that because, because of the thrill of it, because of the exercise, because of the challenge, and just, just being outdoors. We love to be outdoors. Um, and we take people with us all the time. And for us, it's just a, a happy day in the woods. I mean, to jump off of a cliff <laughs> and uh, to kind of bounce around and get abrasions on the rocks, that's, that's fun to us. And the reason that it's fun is because we know we're secure, we know we're safe. Whatever kind of bumps and bruises and scrapes and scratches we get, we realize that for the most part, the, the chances of us getting seriously ill, I mean, uh, injured, um, are pretty minimal. And there's a reason for that. Let me explain the reason. Um, all of the cl climbing that my family does is called top rope climbing. There's other kind of climbing that's more dangerous. We, we stick to the safe stuff, most of us, except Andy. He's a wild man. Um, 
and Josh sometimes, but we stick with top rope climbing. Top rope means your anchor is always above you. So if you fall, you're not going to fall far. You might swing, you might, you know, smash into the rock a little bit, but you're not going to go far. You're going you're gonna to remain alive. You're going to be fine. And so we don't worry. There's enough of a thrill that it's exciting, but we would never do it if we didn't feel like it was safe. And believe me, uh, Mama wouldn't let the, <laughs> let the kids do that if she wasn't absolutely confident that it was safe. They're secure. There's some danger to it, but we are secure. Now, why is that the case? Why is there such security? Let me tell you what the security comes from. In the places that are, that are really nice to climb, like in mineral wells, someone has gone and, and driven anchors into the rock. They actually come with those, um, those drills, uh, compound drills, or uh, I forget what they're, impact drills, and they, they hammer into the rock. They drill into the rock, and they put a bolt in there that's a foot, two feet long, and they sink it down into the rock, and it has a little hook on the end. And we attach to that hook. In fact, whenever we climb, we always attach to two. Because once in a while, you'll hear climbers talk about, oh, yeah, I found an anchor laying down here on the ground, and it still was attached to some of the rock. Once in a while, even though it's in rock, sometimes they break loose. So we always anchor in two different places. And when we do, and we always do, but when we do, we always have this sense we're secure. We're secure. We're going to take risks because that's what we're there for. But it's not blind risk. We know that we are secure. My, my older boys now are working for Rusty, the tree trimmer, the tree man, Rusty Tree Man. And, uh, and they do the same thing. They climb these trees, they attach the ropes, or they attach the ropes first and climb these trees. And you know what? Once, once in a while, they fall out. I think it was Andy who fell out a couple days ago, a couple weeks ago. And you know what? Didn't fall far. Why? Because he had a solid anchor over his head. Beloved, this is what true hope is like. And here, let me just put, paint you this picture, and we'll trace it out in Scripture as we go, okay? So what is the anchor? What is the anchor? If you are a believer, if you are a child of God, your anchor is God himself. And you attach the rope of faith to the anchor of God, and you are secure. You're secure. And is there, there are certain dangers that you'll face as you're living with that kind of setup? You placing your faith in the anchor who is God? Sure there is. Are there risks? You bet there are risks. Are you secure? Totally. Absolutely. Now, when I was, I grew up climbing, I grew up in the Northeast, and um, what we learned is that if you, if you go to a place where you don't have anchors already in the ground, you can make an anchor out of a tree, and there's a certain kind of tree you're looking for, and it's not a species of tree, it's the size of tree, and we call this tree a bomb-proof anchor. Someone could literally drop a bomb near you, and there is no way that one anchor is ever going to come loose. That's what God is to us. He's a bomb-proof anchor. I mean, Satan can throw his darts, he can drop bombs, he can do whatever he pleases, but he will not unearth our hope. Because our hope is God. It is God. 
And so the Old Testament idea of hope is this rope that you hang your life on. It's interesting also, just as an aside, that the word hope, one of the words for hope that's really common, the second, second most common word for hope, I think, in the Old Testament is one that is often translated in your Bible, wait. Isn't that interesting? And so you know scriptures that say, wait on the Lord, wait upon the Lord. That doesn't mean be idle and do nothing. That means put all of your hope in him, even when it looks like he's doing nothing. Your circumstances aren't moving forward. You've got this thing that needs to be addressed, and you can't find the answer, and you're just you're hoping in God. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. May your hope be in him. May he be your refuge, your anchor, your rock, your fortress, your strong tower, your shield, your defender. In the New Testament, there is one dominant word for the, for the term hope. It's the noun form of the word el peace, which means to expect. We see examples of this expectation throughout the New Testament. Hope is always forward-looking. We're always looking to the future. It is always something, it's anchored in our future, not in our present. And so, for example, Romans 8, 24, Paul explains this, and he says, For in hope, that's L, peace, we have been saved. For hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? In other words, you were saved to a hope that is yet future. And so we should live with a future orientation that guides us, that governs the way we interpret the world, the way we interpret our circumstances. Now, you're going through circumstances right now. They may be happy circumstances, and, and you're not feeling right now why you need a lot of hope, because you're just basking in it. You're just loving it. It's, everything's hunky-dory for you. But there are some of you, maybe a lot of you, who are listening to my voice right now, and that's just not the case. You've got all kinds of things going on in your life, and you're wondering, where do I get hope? Where do I get hope? How do I find it? Let me say something else about hope as well. I wish we had time to delve into this. I wrote a paper on this last year, and it's so fascinating to see how the Word of God deals with two kinds of hope. There is false hope, and there is true hope. False hope and true hope. And what we often discover as we're counseling people, and as I'm bringing the word of God to bear on my own life, when things are out of whack in my heart spiritually, generally speaking, I can always trace it back to this. I've placed my hope in something other than God. Forget about the bomb tree. You've just attached your rope to a twig sticking out of the ground. A piece of poison ivy. And when you go over the cliff, you are really going to go over the cliff. Um, it's not the descent that's going to hurt you. It's the, you've heard it, it's the sudden stop at the bottom, right? Um, that's what it's like. And so some people have put their hope in pornography. Some people have put their hope in riches. Some people have put their hope in job or in family or finding a husband someday or your health, your medication, whatever it is, it's just a twig sticking out of the ground, and I guarantee it will let you down. One of the questions that we ask people 
who come for counsel is when we hear about the pattern of their life and how, and how it just seems like it's failed. Their attempts at finding happiness and security and, and whatever it is they're looking for has failed. And so we ask them, you know, how's your way working out for you? And you've been doing it your way for a long time. How's that working? Or another way of saying it is this. It seems to me that your belief system is failing you. Your faith, the object of your faith, is not worthy of your faith. You're trusting in good things, but they're not God. They become God to you. They are your functional God, but they are not God. Therefore, they're an idol. It's an idol. And it's no wonder that you're in despair. You've placed the things that are most valuable to your soul, you have anchored to a false hope. And this gives us kind of a definition of hope, but the more important questions for us this morning are really just one. Where does true hope come from? Where do we get true hope? Okay. Now, if God is the anchor, if he is our ultimate hope, then, I mean, what does that mean practically? How do we do that? How do we keep ourselves living in that kind of hope? Because I tell you what, I promise you, if you're not in a trial right now, you soon will be. You've just got to be. It's not going to take long. This week or next or maybe just today, before you leave this building, you just never know. You going to be ready? You going to be ready to respond to that in hope? Where does true hope come from? And the answer to that question might surprise you because the bedrock truth, the bedrock uh, of, of real true hope is found nowhere else but in the ground of biblical faith. Biblical faith. And so we come this morning to one of the most cherished portions of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. And this, this whole chapter has, been, has just been loved by saints from all ages of church history. It's been called the honor roll of the Old Testament saints. It's been called the faith chapter. It's been called the Westminster Abbey of Scripture. It's been called the, the hall of faith or the hall of fame of Old Testament faithful saints. To the question, where does real hope come from? The Scripture says, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, this is an important text for us this morning. Because it answers the question, where does true hope come from? When you've been thrown into some unexpected disappointment or disaster or painful trial or powerful temptation, where does true hope come from? And the answer of the author of Hebrews is this. True hope comes from a rock-solid faith in the unshakable, unalterable promises and commands of God. So let's, let's think about the question again. Where does hope come from? Our hope is God, but how do we lay hold of that hope? 
Practically speaking, what does it mean that I have hope in God? There's a lot of confusion about this in our culture. There's a lot of confusion about this, especially in Christian culture, but certainly in the world as well, um, when it comes to faith. We're told the secret to happiness and success is to have faith in ourselves. Um, But that's like anchoring the rope to one side of your harness and anchoring the other end of your rope to the other side of your harness. I mean, when you fall, I mean, this this is what it's like to trust your own heart. When you fall, guess what goes with you? Your heart. It just goes with you. Your anchor is meaningless. It's empty. It's vacuous. It's vain. Or how about this? Have faith in, in God as you understand him. That's how Alcoholics Anonymous and and other 12-step programs, just, just make up your own God. Um, which is really just means switch gods because your God is alcohol now. Find something else to, to be your God. Uh, some will say all you need to do is think positively, believing that everything's going to turn out well in the end. It may not. You may die. Just some encouragement for you. <laughs> Walt Disney productions have been suggesting for decades that to have faith is, is to wish upon a star, a little pixie dust. And maybe your fairy godmother will appear and make everything all right. But hope doesn't. Um, hope's not like that. Faith isn't like that. And what kind of hope does that kind of faith bring? And so you see, when, when people are anchoring their faith to the wrong things, is it any wonder that they move from philosophy to philosophy, to experience to experience, to disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? I've known young, young women who have just, i got to have a husband, got to have a husband, got to have a husband, got to have a husband. And so they go from boy to boy to boy to boy to boy to boy to boy, finally get married, divorced, get married, get divorced. I mean, we can play out any kind of scenario. When your anchor, when your, when your faith is in an anchor that is not God, you are in serious trouble. And so the author, the inspired author tells us that true hope, inspiring faith, what it really is, and it consists of two important parts. And let's look at this. First of all, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the word for assurance here, hypostasis, is literally, literally means that which stands under. It means a firm foundation, like a slab of concrete under your house. Faith is the assurance. It's the bedrock. Now, my neighborhood, uh, there's a great illustration of this, because um, we live, we're in Western Hills, so we live in these you know, small hills, um, and, it's, and it's just a nice place to live. But on the other side of the street, there's a creek. Actually, there's a row of houses, and behind them is a creek. And a few years ago, a number of years ago now, we noticed that almost everybody on the other side of the street was having foundation problems. And these foundation companies were like bees all through that, our neighborhood, but only on that side of the street. And I think every one of those houses has had a foundation work done. On our side of the street, I don't know of a single, family, a, a single household that's had foundation problems. And one day I walked across the street, and our neighbor, Bill, who's 
like 81, 82. He was there when all those houses were built. And I asked him, why is it that all your houses, that your house and everyone else on your side of the street, why is it that you've all needed foundation work? And on the other side of the street, where we're kind of elevated about six or eight feet higher than he is, why is it that none of us have needed foundation work? And he said, that's easy. He said, they built your house on a huge hunk of limestone. He said, now on our side, it was fill dirt. And around here, I mean, the soil is going to move anyway. It's shifting and it's swaying and, and typical Texas soil. And what happens is your foundation moves and it's got the weight of your house on it, so it cracks and it breaks. But he said, over on your side of the street, it doesn't move. It's, it's just literally rock solid. And that's a perfect illustration here, I think, of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Now, faith is the assurance. It is the foundation. It is a rock under your life that doesn't move. Faith is. Why? Because it is anchored in God. It's anchored in God. But it's not only the assurance of things hoped for. Watch this. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is the conviction of things not seen. The word for conviction here means evidence or proof. And just as physical eyesight produces conviction or evidence of visible things, so faith is kind of the organ of the soul, as the Puritans would say, which enables us to see what is invisible. Now, that's, that's not a mystical kind of thing. We're not really seeing things. We're not having visions. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this. Faith, true biblical faith, gives us the capacity to hear God's promises and God's commands. Commands and promises always go together. For every command, there's a promise. And pretty much behind every promise, there's a command. And here's what the eyes of faith are able to do. The eyes of faith are able to look at the command and the promise of God, that two-sided thing from God, a promise and command, and say, I see it, I believe it, and I am anchoring my soul onto that. That's what he means. It is self-evident to the child of God when he is facing temptation, if he looks to the commands and the promises of God, he sees clearly. Here's the problem when you face trial and difficulty and you've got relational problems, relational conflict going on. You know what? It's hard to see, isn't it? It's hard to think clearly. It's hard to rationalize. It's hard to think God's thoughts. What do we need? We need two things. God's commands and his promises. We need God's written commands and his written promises. Why? Because that is the assurance. That is what we are basing our faith upon. Therefore, we have hope. Therefore, we have hope. One example of this that the author points out is uh, later on in this chapter, chapter 11. Look at, uh, pick up with, here with me in verse 24. Here's what he says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's really interesting because he, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter in the sense that she, remember, found him in the little basket floating down the Nile River because the Pharaoh, uh, her father, had commanded that uh, any Jewish baby that was born, any Hebrew baby that was born, was to be thrown into the Nile and killed. 
And so technically, they obeyed the command by putting the baby in the Nile. But he was in a basket that turned into a little boat. They put tar all over it, and it came floating down to where the uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter was visiting the river and found this basket and adopted this child to be her own. He actually grew up in Pharaoh's household. And according to this text, there apparently came a point of time when Moses had to make a decision. Are you going to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter? That is, are you going to be an heir to all of the privileges of Egypt? Or are you going to, be, are you going to identify yourself with God's covenant people? And he chose not to be, not to be, He turned his back on all of the wealth of Egypt. Watch what it says. Choosing rather, verse 25, to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And here's why. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That's an amazing statement. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, how much did he know about the Christ? I mean, it'd be another 40 years before Moses would write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, so there was very little written revelation. Maybe Job. Job probably already existed, the book, before Genesis. But besides that, I don't know that we had any other written revelation. But here's what they did have. They had narrative. They had been told, I guess Adam told Seth, and Seth told his son, and and Enoch, and Methuselah, and Noah, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Um, He had all of those men who passed down from generation to generation to generous the glory, the majesty, and the word of God. And so Moses knew something of the promises of God. Did he know about the promised Christ? I don't know how much more than Genesis Genesis chapter 3, when God promised he would send a son of Eve to crush the serpent's head. What did he know about the promised one beyond that? I don't know. But here's what he did know. He knew that God was trustworthy. And to be a companion of God is infinitely better than to be a companion of rich unbelievers. And so it was, as it were, him choosing the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And you know why the author of Hebrews words it like that here? Because now he's talking to New Testament believers, you and me. And he's telling us, embracing the reproach of Christ is greater than riches in this world. In other words, it's safer It's more wonderful. It's glorious. It is the the substance of your hope. Christ now is the substance of your hope. If you hook your anchor to riches, you're going to die. It will not be what riches promises. The promise of riches is a lie. The promise of pornography is a lie. The promises of discontent are a lie. And you just go down, down the line and name every sin. Whatever the problem is from sin, it's a lie. 
It's a false hope. Don't anchor yourself to that. It will fail you. And so, real inspiring, hope, hope, real hope inspiring faith is a kind of faith that empowers us to make decisions under pressure, under the pressure of trials and temptations that can only be explained as clinging to invisible realities that God has revealed. Now, a little review. What are those invisible realities? God's commands and what? God's promises. Yes, thank you. Say it with me. God's commands and God's promises. Say it again. God's commands and God's promises. And where do we find them? Right here. In the Word of God. And so our hope is anchored Our hope is in God, who is our anchor. And how do we do that? We do it by faith. And what does that look like? By choosing in the midst of our circumstances not not to trust in the promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not, Not to trust the promises of sin, but rather to put all of our trust, our faith, our belief in the promises and the commands of God, saying to our own souls, soul, why are you trusting? Why are you trusting in the empty, lying promises of sin when God has given you unshakable, bedrock, unalterable, undefilable promises and commands in his word? Read them, memorize them, meditate on them, and trust them. And all that God has promised for you and Jesus will be yours. This is glorious, beloved. Because it teaches us how to respond. It teaches us what to do when we're faced with unwelcome circumstances. And Jesus had to do this. Remember, we talked last time about Jesus being a man and how he responded to temptation as a man. And so the question then becomes, why would, why would Jesus, who, who had all power to do as he pleased with the powers of heaven and the people of earth, why would he allow a small group of puny soldiers to arrest him, falsely accuse him, and nail his feet and hand to a cross? Why? You didn't have to do that. And the answer? He did it because he was clinging to invisible realities that God had revealed to him. He was clinging to invisible realities that he could see by faith that his father had promised him. The object of his faith was that his father would do exactly as he had promised. And that's why in the garden, Jesus cried out, not my will, but thine be done. He wasn't trusting in his own feelings. Did he he want to go to the cross? We know he he didn't have good feelings about the cross. He wasn't excited about getting there. I mean, who would be? It wasn't the desires of his flesh, that's for sure. Jesus didn't enjoy the experience of the cross. I mean, Hebrews 12, same book, right? Tells us he endured the cross, despising its shame. Really? He endured and despised? Why? Why did he do that? Why did he do it? He did it because he did it because he. He knew something that no one else believed, even though he had explained it to his disciples many times. There was something that that he saw that no one else saw. 
There were invisible realities that were invisible to everyone else except him. Why? Because he believed his father. There were his commands. And there were promises. And he came to fulfill all righteousness, obeying every command. And he did it for the joy set before him. The promises. And you know what the great promise was? The promise of John 3.16. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son, the only one, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There is purpose. There is meaning. God is doing something. He's achieving something. He's doing it through your pain. Don't pull the ejection seat. Just obey, trust, believe. And so Jesus didn't experience, he didn't enjoy the experience of the cross but he endured it faithfully because he was trusting in God's plan, his promises, and his commands. So God the Father had promised the Son that he would raise him from the dead and save a world of sinners from eternal destruction by his sacrifice. And Jesus believed the Father's promise, and he believed it so deeply that it was a reality to him even before it occurred. And frankly, that's the kind of faith the author is speaking of here. Faith is the substance and the proof of things hoped for. Now, let's just go back to hope for a minute because we talk about having hope and having faith in ways that are not in accordance with what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. We say, oh, you know, I, I hope to graduate from college. I hope to get a better job. I hope to find a nice guy to marry. That's not this kind of hope. And faith, we were talking this week at school about a family that moved to a different state in a different city, and, uh, and they were asked, uh, so why did you come here? Oh, we just believe that God is going to give us, uh, has a ministry for us to do here. Why do you believe that? We just believe we're acting in faith. In faith on what's your faith in? I mean, do you have a promise? Do you have a command? No. Did you hear from God? Don't say yes. <laughs> um, that's not the kind of faith he's talking about. That's faith in faith. That's faith in, in the impulses of your own nature, your own heart. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith says this, God, right now, it's really hard, and I'm really tempted. But I know what you want because I know your word. I know your command. And I know with every command there is a promise and I can't think for the life of me what the promise is, but I know it's there. And I do know your command. And I know the pattern that you've shown in your word. And God, I'm going to do this because I have biblical precedent for it. I have a biblical command for it. And I believe you're going to bless, though I cannot for the life of me imagine how. That's faith. And it is a faith that is anchored in the bedrock hope of God's word. Beloved, this is our hope. Our hope is in God as he has revealed himself in this book. And not anything outside of it. Not dreams, not visions, not people's imaginations or counsel. 
All of our hope, if it's biblical hope, is grounded by faith in the promises and commands of God. You want some of the promises? Here's, here's examples. Okay, Titus 2.13. Look at that. Turn there. Titus 2.13. And here's what it says. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his buddy Titus, whom he had sent to the island of Crete. Um, Paul had described the Cretans as liars and gluttons and then sent Titus to go minister to him, bring him the gospel. And here's what he says. Paul calls it, watch this, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a promise. Our hope is in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what's our hope grounded in? Sometimes, you know what? Things are so bad, and the only thing you can think of in terms of a promise is Jesus is coming back. He will make every wrong right. There's no court that can fix my problem, and the people who are involved are resistant to resolving it biblically. But this one thing I know, Christ is returning. How do I know that? Because he's promised. He's promised. Now, turn a few more pages to the right. This is 1 Peter 1.3. Apostle Peter this time. We hope for the return of Christ, but watch this. We hope for the resurrection because, as Peter says here, 1 Peter 1.3. I want to show you a couple other things from this chapter 2. If you're needing hope this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a great text for you, for all of us. First Peter 1, 3, but um, uh, let's, just, let's just think about this. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to, well, that's interesting. If we'd written this, we might have just said, who caused us to be born again. Glory, hallelujah, right? Isn't that wonderful news? Born again. I mean, I mean, if he stopped right there, it would have been wonderful news. But we don't think very often that he has caused us to be born again to something. In other words, there's greater purpose. There's a, there's a greater plan. Your salvation is actually going to take you somewhere. There is a destination that is glorious that starts when you've been born again. And so he says this, who caused us to be born again to a living what? Hope, say it, hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Watch this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. You know why our hope is so wonderful? Because nothing can touch it. Okay, so we're in a real financial difficulties, our country, and, and Europe in, in worse state of affairs. And we're looking at something happened with the dollar. And so, uh, what's your hope going to be in? Well, if you listen, listen to radio or watch TV, this is what they're going to tell you. Don't put your hope in the stock market. Take all of your money and invest in what? Gold. Because gold, what? Doesn't perish. That's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 7. 
so that the proof of gold, which is what? Perishable. Perishable. Uh, no, I'm not giving you inv investment advice. You do what you want financially, and, and it may be a good decision to do that. But you know what? Just understand whether you do that or not do that. Gold makes a terrible anchor for your soul. Why? Because it's perishable. It's not bomb-proof. Your hope, this is, this is the whole point of this chapter, is your hope. Don't anchor your soul to things that are imperishable. Look at verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The things upon which our hope is anchored. Verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your what? Hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what eschatology is for? Eschatology, big theological word, just means end times. God's plan for the end times. You know what that's about? Let me tell you what it's not about. It's not something that God did so that publishers could make books with charts. You know, are you a pre-mill pre -mill guy? You're an ah-mill guy? You're pre-trib, ah-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Um, are you... Are you a preterist? Are you covenant? Are you dispensational? Um, you know, there's some valid questions there. And I'm not, I'm not putting that field of, of theology down. But listen, we can really go astray on this and miss the whole point. The point is, your hope is anchored above you. Therefore, you are safe. Your hope is anchored in God and he has a plan for your future that is unalterable and it is more imperishable than gold. It is glorious. It is trustworthy. So anchor your hope there. Anchor your hope there. And as you're anchoring your hope there, <laughs> I have a little more time. Verse 14. While you're doing that, watch this. Remind yourself that that you're a child who's called to be obedient. As obedient children, then do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You see time sequence here? Don't look that way. Look that way. Don't look to your past. Look to your future. Your orientation should be northward, Godward. Keep your eye on the North Star, Jesus Christ. Move in that direction. Keep your focus and your hope on the future, Relative to God's promises, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Isn't it interesting that the call to holiness is rooted in our hope? Look down at verse um, 20. For he, he's speaking of Christ here, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. By the way, those of you who wrestle with the idea of foreknowledge, just understand in verse 20 
that Christ was foreknown, it's the same word, so factor that into your study. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for our sake, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and what? Hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God. It's a great text. And I wish we just had time to, through this chapter, you know, why don't you keep the Olympics off today and just work through chapter 1 of First Peter? Just a thought. How about this one? First John, just keep turning to the right here. First John 3, 2 and 3. So we hope for the return of Christ. We hope for the resurrection and the inheritance that we will receive on that day. You know, there's three parts to your salvation. Did you realize that? There's justification. That's the moment that you receive God's saving grace. You were pronounced justified, righteous though you are sinful. And it's on the merits of Christ's righteousness. You are justified. And then there's this process from justification toward the end of your life, the rest of your life, is this process. We call it progressive sanctification. You are being made holy. You are progressively becoming more like Christ. It's called sanctification. So justification, sanctification, and then we have this future orientation, this future promise, and it's called what, class? Do you remember? Glorification. Oh, you're such good students. Justification, sanctification, glorification, and that's what John is talking about here. We hope for glorification because here's what John wrote, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. In other words, we will be transformed into his likeness. Now watch this. See if this rings a bell from the First Peter passage. Everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. What's the point? That hope that we have in God, by faith in his promises and commands, should be evidenced by our holiness. Or let's rewind that. If there is a lack of holiness, it demonstrates that I'm not living in faith, but unbelief in the promises of God, who is my hope. Therefore, I must be anchored somewhere else. There must be some other functional God in my life that is nothing more than an idol to me that I have been deceived or have deceived myself into thinking this is where I find life. And it will produce for you death. So there's future glorification. There's a lot of other things, but here's another one. Another hope that we have for the future it's the hope of future reward. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, isn't this a great promise? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, eternal. 
journal. And it's just a different author saying the same thing. Faith, remember? Go back to Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are we hoping for? We're hoping confidently in what God has promised. It is not a wishing kind of hope. It is a firm confidence that in the future, at God's perfect time, everything that he has promised us will be realized. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Conviction. It means that I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. And because I know it and I'm absolutely convinced of it, I make decisions that seem weird and radical to my friends. There are things that they do I'll never do. There are things that I do that they'll never do. Because my hope is anchored in God. And by faith, I'm living consistently with that hope. And just to steer me in a direction that's glorious and blessed, but oh so different than my unbelieving friends. And so how can some people remain so hopeful, so joyful in the midst of a severe trial? How are they able to battle the kinds of temptations that assault their souls? They do it because their lives, watch this, their lives are ruled not by the whimsical wish upon a star or a blind faith that everything will turn out all right. Rather, their hope is grounded in the bedrock of God's unshakable, unalterable promises and commands. We don't have time this morning, but the rest of chapter 11 is simply a list of narrative examples of men and women whose lives were undergirded by this kind of hope-inspiring faith. And so I would add a third thing, and then we'll talk about it again here in just a minute. But three things you're looking for in the Word of God to help you with your hope, inspiring your faith. And it's these, God's commands, God's promises, and biblical examples of people who trusted in other gods and people who trusted in the Lord our God. Hebrews 11 is all about people who had true hope because they had true faith. And so this is what he does. He just starts going through these narratives and we don't have time to look at them, but let me just mention a few. He begins with Abel, whose sacrifice was better than his brother's by faith. And then he tells Enoch, he, talk, he reveals to us the life of Enoch who walked with God. God took him, first rapture, Come to heaven without dying by faith. And then he tells of Noah who built an ark by faith and Abraham who received a son and a nation by faith. And then it's Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David, all of these, verse 39, look at verse 39. All of these gained approval through their faith. Gained approval through their faith. but they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You know what that means? The great and glorious promises of God for our inheritance, Christ's return, our glorification, all of that stuff, 
We experience it together. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, modern saints, saints who will come after us, probably. All of us will experience it at the same time. The fulfillment of this hope. The fulfillment of this hope. Beloved, when the next trial hits your life, I guarantee this, that the object of your faith will be made evident by how you respond. Let me say it again. The next trial that you face, I guarantee that the object of your faith is going to be made evident by the way in which you respond. Like the bottle illustration, you know, you shake the bottle, whatever comes out was inside. That's what's going to happen. Whatever your faith is in, maybe your faith is in your ability to control things, and that's why you're so fearful. Or maybe your faith is in everything just being perfect, and it's not, and so you're depressed. And maybe your faith is in, you know, your husband or your wife or the possibility of getting one of them. Maybe your faith is in your money, and you may be about to lose that. Maybe your faith is in government, and that's evidenced by the fact that you spend all your time listening and talking about Christians in government. What is your faith in? At your next trial, at your next difficulty, whatever your faith is in will be revealed. J.C. Ryle said, whoever you are in the day of trial, that you are and nothing more. Oh, that's too convicting. But isn't it true? What you are in the day of trial is what you are and nothing more. Beloved, when your next trial comes, what, how will you respond? The next time uncertainty about the future tempts you to be overcome by anxiety, will you trust your feelings? Or will you trust God who said, fear not, I am with you. Do not be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Promise? It's a promise. The next time your heart is tempted either to the pride of arrogance that secretly says no one appreciates how much I've accomplished or the pride of self-pity that says no one appreciates how much I suffer, what will you do? Will you be ruled by the empty cravings of pride or by faith in God's promises that says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, it's a command, that he may exalt you in the proper time, it's a promise, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Promise. Isn't that beautiful? When you visit a wealthy friend's house, ladies, sorry, this is for you, and covetousness comes knocking at your door, or self-righteousness, will you be ruled by the empty promises of wealth? Or by the, by the promise of Jesus who said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's a command. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a promise. For where your treasure is, here's the truth. There your heart will be also. When you click on the internet this afternoon, 
men, and lust begins to seduce your soul? Will you be ruled by the promises of synthetic intimacy or the promise of God that says, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, life and peace. And so you see, beloved, hope for the future is based entirely on what on what promises become the object of your faith? If we believe the sin that tempts us is the most worthy and satisfying object of our trust, then we will sin and be sorely disappointed because no sinful promise can fulfill its promise. It's a lie. If, however, we believe that the promises of God and the commands of God are more worthy and satisfying as an object of our faith, then we will choose to trust God and be unspeakably blessed in ways that we never dreamed. We need to come to terms with the fact, listen carefully to this statement, we need to come to terms with the fact that biblical faith is not the same thing as biblical theology. You are a well-educated group. You are educated far beyond your obedience, and so am I. But biblical faith is not the same thing as biblical theology. Just because you know it doesn't mean you live it. And this is a, one of the pitfalls of seminary. Love seminary. I just got back from school. Loved it. But there are dangers. There are dangers there. There are dangers with anything you set your heart on. Even the study of Scripture. So many men hear stories all the time. Heard two of them this week. So many men who gave themselves completely to ministry, to the study of God's Word and the ministry of God's Word and lost their wife, lost their children. Listen, biblical faith is not the same thing as biblical theology. True faith is one that chooses to trust the promises of God found in Scripture. And so if your love of Scripture and your study of Scripture doesn't lead you to faith in God's promises and obedience to his commands, then you're a bibliolater. You worship the Bible. It's become an idol to you. Where will a woman find hope after her husband leaves her? She can do nothing about it. Only one place in the eternal promises of God. Where will a man, uh, how will a man be, find a way to be joyful even after he loses his job? By faith, not in his career, but in God who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will provide for all your needs. Where will an older couple facing the prospect of incurable cancer, where will they find peace and confidence? They'll find it if their hope is not in a healthy body or in medication, but in the promise that Jesus made. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Never die. How can a single person resist the temptations that grow out of loneliness they can do it by placing their trust in God's promise. Once again, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In a sense, the whole of Scripture has been written to bring about this one point. And Paul kind of clarifies it for us in Romans 15, 4. 
when he writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. You want to build this kind of hope in your life? Don't worry about getting this down in your notes. I'm going to go too fast. Dana said she'll put it on a card for everybody or email it out this week. Just listen. Number one, identify an area in your life where you were most often tempted. There are areas in all of our lives where we find ourselves um, almost systematically being tempted in this area more than others. There may be a few areas. Identify that. Number two, search the scriptures to discover commands, promises, and examples that relate to this sin, this temptation that you struggle with most. Number three, memorize some of the scriptures that seem most relevant and helpful to you in the situation. Number four, review, review these scriptures every day in your personal time with God. You know, you're, you're reading in Isaiah, or you're reading in Zechariah, or you're reading in... Uh, whatever you're reading, have these scriptures, have these promises, these commands. Have them right there. Don't just be generally reading the Bible, and, and that's wonderful to do, but also have a plan where you're going to bring the scriptures to bear on your own heart because you know you're going to be faced with these things today. And so remind yourself of these commands and promises and examples every day. Next, become an encourager of others who struggle, use the promises of God to encourage others. Write notes, send emails, leave messages, text, Twitter, whatever, smoke signals, homing pigeons. Um, encourage one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another for this purpose. And then finally, make the promises of God the fuel of your worshipful prayers. Spend lots of time. Just praising God, worshiping him for his promises and asking him help so that you can obey his commands. Beloved, this is the path to life. It's narrow and it's small, but it is life to us. You see, true faith in God's promises destroys hopelessness and fills our souls with absolute certainty and assurance that God who has promised is faithful. And beloved, that is what true biblical hope is all about. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much to learn from your word about how good you are and how faithful. And Father, I'm not sure that we need to learn more about that. We do need your help obeying what we already know. And so we ask you, Father, to help us, help us be faithful. Help us to know the joy of faithfulness to you. Help us to know the joy of sins forgiven, and we will need that joy many, many times this week and for the rest of our lives. Help us not to be so proud as to not be able to confess our sins and own them. Oh, Father, help us, teach us to apply the gospel to them so that we can cling to your precious promises by faith. And all of it is rooted in Christ. He is the anchor of our souls. And so we give you praise for that and thanksgiving in Jesus' name.